I have met over the course of my academic career, many individuals with, get this, PhDs in entrepreneurship that have never run a lemonade stand. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In with Rick Jordan episode. I don't even know because there's so many. And today I'm going to ask you first, share this. You love the content. You listen to this. That's the only way that we grow and the only way that we can help more people. You can help more people by sharing this out today to at least three friends. And I'm pumped today because if you know anything about me whatsoever, and if you don't, whatever I'm going to tell you, I'm big into motivating. I motivate myself every single morning and I love reflecting and sending that out to everybody that's in my following and just motivating everyone else and helping you get from point A to B. My guest today loves doing the same stuff. Yeah. This dude has been a management consultant for 30 years, but he aims to make his personal ding in the universe by assisting others in making their own ding in the universe. Welcome to the show, Biaz Shaka. Hey. Oh, how you doing? Pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. Let me make this easier on your audience, though. My name is actually Biad Shaka. Just so you don't think you're pronouncing an appetizer on an Italian menu, my friends call me Bill. You can do the same. <laughs> you said an appetizer on an Italian menu? Dude, I don't know any appetizer that's been... I, I don't think I've ever eaten Biage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, but that I, bill is funny. That, that works. That's awesome. I uh, I see that you're from Pennsylvania, but dude, you're in Costa Rica right now, right? I'm from the Scranton Wilkes-Barre area, the northeast part of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I was getting very, very tired of. Um, it's been a while now. What do you call that white stuff that's on the ground and it's cold? Oh, snow. Uh, yeah, I've been getting. I was very tired of snow. Uh, the last month I was there, uh, the average temperature was minus two degrees Fahrenheit, and I said it's time. So uh, I came down to Costa Rica to uh, continue consulting and teaching. I've been a, a, a higher education professor for a number of years, thinking I could do this online, and just decided to stay here. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I saw that you were Professor Bill Shaka, and I was going to ask, what are you a professor of, if, or if that was just kind of a, a self-proclaimed title? No, no, actually, I've been uh, teaching economics for almost 40 years. Uh, I, I don't want to say I've been teaching economics a long time, but my... Uh, my first teacher was Adam Smith. Uh, so yeah, I've been, uh, I've been teaching economics a while. Adam Smith, you don't know who he is. He's the guy that wrote the first book on economics back in 1776. That's the first dude, yes. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> now, here's, there's some interesting things you're talking about here because I'm big into motivation, of course, right? I own a cybersecurity company. You are a professor of economics and yet you're big into motivation. How do economics and motivation go hand in hand, or do they? Well, economics is a social science, my friend. Economics, when you look at an economics book, it looks like it's all math and geometry, but economics has more to do with psychology and sociology than it does with uh, calculus and geometry. Uh, so the end result is, is that if you understand the fact, if you understand stimulus response, Pavlov dog, ring a bell, see the dog, ring a bell, see the dog, then you understand the same process in economics. Price changes behavior. Price is the bell. Behavior, in other words, how many things you buy, is, I'm sorry, is the price is the stimulus. How many things you buy is the behavior. 
So the end result is, is that it is still a social science. Now, I've been teaching economics uh, actually since 1982, but uh, I've also branched into other academic disciplines, such as leadership and management and marketing as the years have gone by. So uh, that, that was happening since 1982, but in 1993, I left the corporate world and started my own company. It, right now, it's called Intelligent Motivation Incorporated, uh, but it had many names in the past, uh, just different iterations. But that's really how I spent my career. I, I actually have a foot in both worlds, academia and private business, and I loved it. I, I wouldn't change a thing about it. I commend you for that too, because uh, you know this is something I've had even a college student actually interview me on my show before, and she was in a her major was entrepreneurship, you know, and I was laughing because I'm like that's a thing that's a major, <laughs> but my my point to her was that you're being taught by somebody who's never even owned a business. But here's, a, here's the difference, right? You're in private business and you're a professor. So you've got the academia and the application. So thank you for that. One of the things my students love is when I say, I'm going to roll up my sleeve and I'm going to show you the scars. Hopefully you won't make the same mistakes I did. Let's get going. That's yeah. phenomenal. That's what makes a real entrepreneur, isn't it? The scars that you bear. Yes, and, and you're exactly right. I have met over the course of my academic career, many individuals with, get this, PhDs in entrepreneurship that have never run a lemonade stand. <laughs> yes, Bill, I like you a lot. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is fantastic. It's, buckle up, everybody, because this is going to be an amazing episode here. So. Bill, my man, economics, you were talking a little bit, we'll get into the, all the other stuff, but there's something you said around this, that price influences behavior, right? What, what do you mean by that? Okay, here's an example. Uh, this comes right from my microeconomics class. Let's say lettuce sells for about a dollar a head, and you buy two heads of lettuce a week. So you go into the store with your cart, you look up, and there it is, lettuce, a dollar a head. That's the stimulus. Here's the behavior. There's a head of lettuce in each hand. Okay, stimulus, dollar, response, two heads of lettuce go in the cart. Now, the stimulus changes. Let's say the stimulus now is lettuce is $2 a head. Does the behavior change? Maybe, maybe not. It's social science, it's based on behavior. You could look at that $2 a head and say, Oh, damn, but I'm a lettuce lover. I have to have my two heads of lettuce a week so the behavior doesn't change. Or you might say, oh, that's a little steep for me. I'll spend $2, but I'm only going to go in for one head of lettuce. Or you might get an individual to say, $2 for a head of lettuce. I need to buy four. It must be organic. You know, you know so, so there's various stimulus that have to do with the, um, uh, with the response. That's, that's how it works. That's so intriguing. There's a, so the, one of my coaches, one of my mentors years ago, I'm talking eight, nine years ago, because uh, in managed services, IT managed services, right? I've always done one single plan. That's it. It's a fixed fee and they pay a certain amount per month that never changes, you know, depending upon the amount of people and the amount of devices that they have there. But I was always in the effect of, in this industry, there's usually like tiers, right? You get like the, the silver, the gold, and the platinum. 
You know, so, and there were different things that were included in each one. And from a sales perspective, social science, right? I was, I could never bring myself to say, hey, because I, I would always sell for the top, right? Because that was the most margin. It was the highest revenue. And I would say, hey, this is what you need, right? And I could never have those lower tiered plans because I couldn't say to my prospects, here's what you really need. I've designed this. We're the best that's around. This is, we know this because I've been in this industry for 20 years. I know what you need. And this is a collection of everything that you need. But then in this industry, there's a lot of people that will say, but when they say no to me, I want to be able to sell down, which is a concept in sales, right? Because it's lower priced. But mm -hmm. I couldn't, I, this was me. I was that organic guy, right? It, from a sales perspective, the organic lettuce guy to where I couldn't say, oh, no problem. You don't want to spend that much. I'll give you my crappy bronze plan instead. Does that work for you? Even though I know it's not going to do anything for you, at least I'm still making money. I couldn't cross that threshold, man, to just try to give the consumer what they wanted for their price point and then have them be pissed at me later on. Interesting. Interesting. But you know, an approach you could have taken was, um, I have an entry level, um, plan for you that I will at least introduce our services to you it may not have all the options that you're looking for but at least it will show you what we can do and i'm here to help i like that i like that approach my man and then my coach around this too when because he talked about a lot about packaging and pricing and for the most part in my industry like i was on a call the other day with a potential acquisition because i'm acquiring 50 to 70 other it firms over the course of the next couple of years uh, over the next two years we're going public here we're, we're our ipos coming up and in these acquisitions, I'm having these conversations already with, with prospective targets. And this guy comes on board, he owns an IT firm right now, and I'm talking to him about valuation, right? The, the metrics that go into how much his company is worth. And he looks at me and he goes, you're an IT guy? I'm like, well, yeah, I cut my teeth in that 20 years ago working with Marilyn. She's like, he's, he goes, you don't talk like one. <laughs> Because I'm talking all, I'm talking economics, I'm talking business, I'm talking financials, you know, which is was even above his head in that time period. But that's the scenario with most of this industry is that they don't understand the business concepts or the economics of what we do. So my coach, the way this was years ago, again, remember eight or nine years ago, he would teach a lot about packaging and pricing because packaging and pricing is just mind blowing to most. They don't know how much they charge and most of them will undercharge for what their value is because they're, they're coming off of working for somebody else making 80K a year and just thinking, I just need to cover what my salary is rather than building a company. So they don't know how to structure this with their margins or cost of goods sold. So he would say, figure out, here's how you figure out your costs. Then you want to have a high margin. Here's a good margin for top of class in this industry. And then he went on beyond that and he goes, then you set your price to whatever the market will bear. Coming back to social sciences again, right? When it comes to economics. So you're talking about the heads of lettuce, right? When you set your prices to whatever the market will bear, are you starting to exclude someone? Because in your example with the lettuce, you referenced three different crowds, but all three of those demographics still purchased. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, yes, you're always excluding some of the market. If you think about it, you know, we talk about supply and demand as one of the cornerstones of economics. Uh, demand comes from us, consumers. Supply comes from the business. If you think about it, what do demanders want? They want everything for free. What do suppliers want? 
They want to give you nothing and charge you everything. So consequently, what you have here are two very, very diverse ways of looking at a situation. The market, the market will determine what the correct price and quantity should be. Ultimately, what you're doing is you are fighting an economic war and the battlefield is called a market. So consequently, when you say, when you say uh, what will the market bear, that's the battlefield. On one side, you have suppliers, the other side, you have demanders, and they're shooting at each other. And eventually they hold up the, the uh, white sign of surrender or truce. That's called equilibrium. Is there a magic wand? I know what your answer to find where that threshold is to where you don't raise your prices too much to, to exclude too many people and you actually can't close the business. You know, you're, you're getting a little bit into philosophy there. You're getting into economic theory. You know, uh, there's a difference between uh, knowledge, wisdom and philosophy. Like knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a salad. And philosophy is contemplating whether ketchup is actually a smoothie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Dude, your one-liners are awesome. (laughs) The end result, I have a lot of years uh, to do uh, to say them, but uh, the end result is that equilibrium is really never reached because there are forces of change called the determinants of demand and the determinants of supply that are constantly shifting them. You know what our job is as astute business people? Keep plugging. Amen. Amen. There is a point, too, where a lot will tend to give up because they don't reach that. I'm with you. I feel that it is a sense of imbalance. You know, there's a certain thing to premium pricing, too. And it's what, you know, that's your organic lettuce people. And that's the position that I've always taken, which is why I've never had those entry level plans as we were talking is because I just didn't want to be seen as somebody for everybody, you know? So that's a philosophical or social science part of it too. Well, that, that's your personal perspective. For sure. You got it. Now, if you were able to get over that personal perspective, what you might do is increase your market share by 25 or 30%. But that's up to you. You know, that's an interesting concept because this is something that I've toyed around with too, is coming out with that entry level product and putting it at a price point to where the masses could adopt it, almost making it a commodity, you know, at least a a portion of those deliverables becoming a commodity and then capturing a large percent of the market with that commoditized product or service. And when I do that, you know, I've almost even wanted to place it under like a different brand right? Just because I didn't want to tarnish, like like if you look at Apple, for example, right? Apple does have an entry level phone, right? They've got the, and every year when they, when they have the premium priced phone that comes out, like the Apple iPhone 12 Pro, they will reduce the 11 Pro in price and say, hey, this was last year's model and you can get it for a little less money. But we still have this entry level one over here, but the entry level one is still $600. (laughs) It's still way up there in price versus like an Android that you can buy off of Amazon for $99 or whatever it is, you know? So they, they do that in a way to say, here's our entry level, but it's still a premium product still under their same brand. It's an interesting concept because I noticed these other premium brands doing things like that to where it's like, I have entry level, but it's still premium. 
Yeah. And if you look at the, uh, the pro Apple tw uh, 12 pro versus the Apple 12 and so forth, this is something that we call demand curve pricing. Uh, what we do is there's a large swap of the market above the equilibrium price that we simply are not. Is there something on the screen? Oh no, I'm looking at my notes. You're good. Oh, okay. Is it your uh, screen? <laughs> yeah, I have Geek Squad working in the background doing something. So I just want to oh, make that's sure. that's fun. <laughs> but uh, I want to say that, hello. <laughs> at, yes, absolutely. At the equilibrium price, there is a whole swath of, um, of additional pricing that we could include, but we don't because it's, it's higher than equilibrium. fact of the matter is, is that Polaroid did this decades ago where they released uh, the high edition of the Polaroid land camera. Uh, and uh, uh, what they did is then they released a, an edition without a leather case. Then they released an edition where the lens was just a little bit uh, uh, thinner and they continued to reduce the price. Consequently, the professional photographers paid the higher price than the uh, a high interest hobbyists paid a little lower price. And eventually you got down where the consumer said, Give me the one with the plastic case. They were happy. That's interesting. You know, there's always going to be demand for different parts of the market too, different segments. And this is something that a lot of retailers have experimented with over the years, as you know, as well as, you know, where, where do we fall in, you know, in the, in the general consumer mindset? Do we want to appeal to the masses? Do we want to have premium pricing or is there a way that we can blend the two? It's always interesting to me to watch that. I appreciate the conversation around that too. So you've gone from economics, then did you start as a professor and then get into private business after you started teaching or were you already in private business? Well, uh, I, I was uh, actually uh, 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 in my undergraduate degree. Please don't laugh. I was a philosophy and sociology major. See, we were, we were all hippies back in the seventies. It was cool, you know. I had hair down here. I looked like Jesus, except I walked around with a guitar, and uh, you know, it, it was it was cool. It, it, it was a cool way to uh, to go to get around. Uh, I immediately got a job right out of college, and I was so lucky because this is nineteen seventy nine. This was during the last year or so of the Carter administration where he proved that you could have high levels of unemployment and high levels of inflation simultaneously. Before him, there was no chance of that. It, uh, you either had high inflation or high unemployment. He proved that we could have both. Economists had to come up with a new name for it. They came up with stagflation. Anyway, uh, I was able to find a job as a juvenile probation. And after about three months as a juvenile probation, this ain't for me. So I continued to stay as a juvenile probation officer, but I hightailed it back to get an, an MBA in the evening. And I doubled and tripled up on my courses. I, I finished in uh, two years, which should have been a four-year degree. Nice, well and, done. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And then after that, I just simply went into the corporate world, little by little, pulled a course here, pulled a course there, eventually I had got a PhD. But after I got my master's, I started teaching at a local community college and I never stopped. And that, and uh, it just so happened that they need, they needed an economics person. Here I was, and it just turned out to be a magical experience. Uh, economics has changed my life. Economics has made me the individual that I am today. I remember my professors uh, very, very well. And it was, it's a wonderful gig. It's a wonderful gig. I mean, I, I, I at some point, at some point, uh, I think uh, I'm going to die, and hopefully I'm, I'm going to go up toward heaven. And the first thing I'm going to say is, uh, 
Hey, uh, St. Peter, uh, do you have an idea how many harps you have and how many you actually need? I think I could help you with this. Let's sit down and work this out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so when, uh, when Jimmy Carter was president, I was one year old. And that, that was the, the last part of, of his presidency. I remember learning about the stagflation because right now in our economy, I was just reading this morning in the journal that this made me laugh to begin with just because of the phrasing. I love the phrasing of journalists. I don't know if you, you appreciate their humor or their lack of humor, whatever way you want to look at it. But it said that you know most economists have now said that our unemployment rates have turned to a quote unquote normal level. You know, but at the same time, we're experiencing inflation because over the last year or so during the pandemic, there's been a lot of consumption, a lot of shortage on supply. There's been overconsumption on some products and then there's been a short of supply on those too. All the way down to you know, microchips are, are in short supply right now. So that it's trouble to get these things. But you see that, that if, if you believe what they're writing, that unemployment has normalized for the most part right now, which I'm not so sure I believe that. But how do you see that this compares back to the Jimmy Carter days when we're at right now? You know, uh, there's an old saying in economics that if you take every economist in the world and line them up end to end, they would still not reach a conclusion. Nah. Uh, and I think it was uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt who started hiring economists. And his, his, his line was, whenever I ask an economist something, they say, well, on one hand, this could happen. And on the other hand, this will happen. And, and, and Roosevelt said, would somebody please find me a one-handed economist? Uh, so, so I'd love to have a one-handed doctor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, uh, so uh, who knows how it actually affects what happened with Carter? There's just no way of, uh, of actually knowing it. I will tell you this, though. I guarantee you that if I gave my opinion... And that if you played this for the economic, uh, the American Economic Association, there would be five, fifty percent of them that, that agreed, and fifty percent that didn't. So it's just like any other part of life, then. That's <laughs> politicians. Yeah, anything. That's funny. But, yeah. When did you start getting into motivation? You know, because it, it sounds like you were a pro <laughs> was it when you were a probation officer? <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Oh, pardon <laughs> the door in the background. That's my lovely wife coming in. But, you know, well, I'm hello, lovely wife. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're being recorded. And this is going out all over the world. Uh, anyway, uh, only 38 countries right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, what happened uh, very interestingly is um, the last year that I was uh, a senior in college and I was studying, uh, you know, philosophy and, uh, and sociology, I got a love for business and I started to spend a lot of time. Uh, I knew I wanted to go back for an MBA at some point. I, I just, it, just, it just happened somehow. It was an organic process. And I started reading the Wall Street Journal every day and so forth. And um, there was an ad in the Wall Street Journal to send away for a free cassette tape. So I mean, don't forget, we're talking about 1980 or, or 79 or so. It was cassette tapes. That were, they were the biggest rage. On the power of personal goal setting, there was a company called Success Motivational Institute out of Waco, Texas. The Paul, uh, Paul Meyer owned the company. And I later bought one of his franchises, actually. But I bought the tape. I started listening to it. And I started understanding the process of goal setting. Okay. That occurred in my senior year in college. 
I'm now taking my first course as an MBA student. It's, it's a 500 level management course called Management Science, which is the mathematical modeling of business, of business problems. Right. Hmm. I was a philosophy major. My courses were called epistemology and metaphysics. I never had, the only math I ever had were the numbers on the page. I, I mean, I, I had one course, Math 5, which the math department lovingly called dummy math. Now I'm trying to figure out calculus, linear algebra, and uh, I, I mean, I, the first day I got this management science book, I was reading and it didn't make sense. It took me 15 minutes to realize it was upside down. I, I mean, it was, all, it was all equations. It was all Greek letters. So I set a goal. I said, all right, I, I want to get my MBA. I'm going to at least get a C in this course. So I set up the management science book on a bookshelf at my home. And I bought a calculus book, an old calculus book for 50 cents. I figured, what the hell? Calculus can't change that much, right? So I bought an old uh, used book for 50 cents. And whenever I got stuck on a, a management science problem, I went back to the calculus book. But then I realized I really wasn't that good at algebra. So I bought a 50 cent algebra book. So when I got stuck on the calculus, I went to algebra. And then I realized I wasn't that good at arithmetic. So I bought a fifth grade arithmetic book. And there were the four books lined up, management science, calculus, algebra, and arithmetic. And when I got stuck on one, I went to the other. This was a three hour course a week that I was probably spending somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 18 hours a week outside of class trying to figure it out. But this is how motivation started. I, I, I wanted to get a C in the course and I worked it and I worked it and I worked it. I did not get a C in the course. I got a B. That is the bug that bit me. And after that, I never stopped setting goals and understanding that all motivation, all motivation is self-motivation. As Dennis Waitman said, even the decision to do nothing is a decision based on self-motivation. Wow. Dude, say that I, again. <laughs> even a decision to do nothing is a decision based on self-motivation. I cannot motivate you to do a thing. I mean, I, if, um, if I suggested that you do something, now granted behavior has consequences. If you're my employee and I tell you to do something and you say no, you can get fired, but I still can't motivate you to do it. You are in charge of your motivation. It revolves around the concept called personal responsibility. No excuses, no BS. You want it, you get it done. It's up to you. Mic drop. Hello. <laughs> Bill, that's in, insane. That's awesome. I love the approach you're taking with this. You wrote a book, too, around goals, right? The Goals Book, Embracing Personal Responsibility in an Age of Entitlement. <laughs> yeah. well, actually, actually, I didn't I see the subtitle until now. That makes me laugh. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, I've written 11 books. Uh, goals Book, and then I, uh, Goals Book did pretty well, so I wrote a sequel to it, which I uh, very originally called... <laughs> Uh, goals book two. And uh, so, so those are the books on goal setting, but I have a whole bunch on management and leadership also. I love that. Well, we're talking about goals. So your, I love your subtitle. You did a sequel, right? The, but the, is this the first one embracing personal responsibility in an age of entitlement? Yes. That's phenomenal, right? Because <laughs> yeah, it's, and there's different, I know we're in a world economy, 
And I've done business with uh, different countries. I've had staff in India, I've had staff in the Philippines, and I've seen differences even with those two types of cultures is that there's, uh, Filipinos are a great culture, my man. There's no sense of entitlement whatsoever because they, my opinion, they deal with so very little. And they have to make ends meet. So just the, the tiniest little bit of appreciation, especially in the realm of a financial appreciation, goes a very, very long way with them. You know, mm-hmm. or even just shipping them because, uh, you know, we're also in an age of VAs, virtual assistants, right? And those are typically Filipino individuals. And just an amazing culture because, dude, they hustle. And they are so grateful for everything that comes across their way with, with work, with finances, with, with everything. You know, but then you look at um, the, the Indian culture because I've used people there. And it, it, especially in the technology field, there's, there's a higher sense of entitlement that I felt with Indian culture because they feel, which rightfully so, they've got a, a bigger uh, a bigger, uh, bigger, and better structure and infrastructure that supports higher education in India, you know, especially for medical, especially for technology and all this. So it's a different part of the world. I mean, literally, quite literally a different part of the world. But where do you feel the, feel the United States falls into this? Because I'm naming different countries right now, but with entitlement, where do you feel the U.S. falls into this, in this age? Uh, I, I think uh, the United States is the uh, leader of entitlement. Uh, they, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it, nobody takes responsibility for anything. Nothing is your fault. Uh, everything, uh, the, the blame belongs to everybody else. Uh, and if uh, you don't like that, you consume. And that, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the, uh, the approach that's taken. Uh, but what I have found, and I have found this in my students uh, over the years, I mean, keep in mind, uh, I've had in excess of 100,000 uh, uh, university students uh, in my career. Uh, what I have found are the ones that embrace personal responsibility are the ones that make meteoric rises in whatever field they're in. Hmm. Uh, they will not accept any, any excuse. They just get it done. And the whole process, I think, uh, I think what you're finding is that there is a psychological uh, dichotomization occurring in the United States. And I don't want to say it's the have and the have-nots. I want to say it's more the will and the will nots. Uh, the wills are the ones who are saying, you know, I'll, I'll get off my, I'll get off the leather couch and I'll do it. And the will nots are the ones that are saying, oh, it's too hard for me. And I, I don't buy that. Oh, I, I, you know what? Uh, I, I cannot tell you how many coaching uh, clients I have fired. Uh, because I, I, like, I, I, don't, I don't view a coaching uh, client as an annuity. My job is not to keep you on my books forever. My job is to teach you something and get you the hell off my books in six months. All right. That's what I have. So if you say to me, coach me on this, I say, no problem. Let's do a three-month contract with the possibility of one additional uh, contract after that. After that, you're gone. And uh, and I mean that honestly because I'm going to do everything I can to teach you what uh, to to work with you in terms of what's necessary, and then then you move on. But I've had some clients that they, they just wanted to latch on. They were psychological vampires. They just they just wanted to latch on and suck the life out of it. No way, no way. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm sorry. Uh, there's only so much that I can do for you. But you know what? You cannot pay me to do your push-ups. <laughs> right on, brother. I've noticed that even in my own life too, because I've had many, many coaches. You know, I didn't hire my first coach until about 13 years ago. And over the course of that, I've had probably about 13 coaches. Because <laughs> you know, it would get to a point to where even though 
I could have continued with a lot of them. They didn't have your outlook, which I so much appreciate, my man. You know, because even when I'll mentor people, right? And I don't have a, a structured program around this. I just sort of do it when I do it you know, and just fill them full of knowledge. I don't want to have to stand there with them forever. You know, I don't want to, because that means that they're not making progress, right? Which they're not owning the personal responsibility, which shifts back to what you were talking about is an entitlement. I don't know, you know, but specifically around when you said that you can't motivate anybody, when you get to that point to where you're like, Hey, I've given you all I can from a knowledge perspective. I've called out all of your behavior irregularities. Where do you go from there to get them up off that leather couch to actually do something about it? There, there's an interesting rub, and I'm glad you brought that up. Because managers and leaders in my live face-to-face training all the time say, wait a minute, part of my job is to motivate my people. You're telling me that all motivation is self-motivation. So then what's my job in terms of motivation? And the answer is quite simple. I cannot motivate another person to do anything. But my responsibility revolves around creating a climate of motivation so they can motivate themselves. That's the rub. That's what we need to do. As individual leaders and managers and executives, as, as, as people that are responsible for other people, if you, can't, you, know, you know you can't motivate them, create a climate of motivation and let them motivate themselves. If they do, you got a winner. If they don't, they're deselecting themselves for continued work. We got straight truth bombs going all over the place Hill, but here. Bill, you're amazing, my man. So I appreciate that. So when, when you create this climate of motivation to where people can self-motivate, right? Do you give them tools to do this? Is it, is it here? How do you, do you set goals? How do you create that environment so that everyone feels free and open to say where they can look around and be like, well, that person's moving that they're doing good things that other person's moving they're doing good things what, what am i not doing why do why am i standing still but now there's tools to help me move myself and motivate myself from this point to another point forward well, again you're, you know now, now we're getting into the, into the world here of leadership more specifically applied leadership and that's fine uh but um the tools are really your behavioral repertoire i'll give you a few examples you want to create a climate of motivation then Act like you're talking. Make sure your actions are congruent with what you're saying. Give you an example. I I was doing some consulting work in a company, and the sales manager uh, was going ballistic as to sales expenses. He told the salespeople that they had to cut back on lunches, they couldn't take uh, clients out for dinners, et cetera, et cetera. Well, after the meeting, a couple of the salespeople saw the sales manager at a bar, and he was having a martini, the way out, he paid for the martini with his corporate credit card. His actions and his behavior were not ruined. That spread like wildfire through the company. And the end result was, I mean, the guy never got fired for that. But what happened was he lost tremendous amounts of face. He lost tremendous amounts of credibility by, by uh, bloviating one point but acting in a different way. So you want to create a climate of motivation? Make sure your behaviors and your, or your, 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 uh, what you're saying and how you're acting are congruent. That's one of the first things you could do. Here's something else you could do. As a leader, you want to create a climate of motivation? Ask questions. Don't just talk. 
you're not a leader to basically continuously give information, get information, process it, and then give it back. Listen before you do it. Ask questions, then listen, then work with the individuals in terms of making the process better. See, this is not difficult stuff, Rick. What makes it difficult is this thing that gets in the way, this big, solid, five-foot mass that we call ego, and we can't seem to break through it. Because so many individuals say, well, you know, I, I've been promoted for a reason. I mean, it's, it's obviously my wit, charm, and good looks. Therefore, I'm going to. And they're the ones that, that make the worst managers, the worst leaders, the worst executives, because all they want to do is speak from on high. Think about this in terms of strength. The most powerful body of water on the planet is the ocean. If I said, which body of water is the leader of all bodies of water? You'd have to say, well, it's the ocean. It's the most powerful. Tsunamis and whirlpools and so forth. Why is the ocean so powerful? Because it's below all of the other bodies of water. All the other bodies of water trickle into the ocean. If a leader adopts that philosophy and stays below their employees, listening to them, understanding them, doing what they can to glean information from them. They're going to be a better leader, man. They're going to be the ocean. Man, dude, that's a strong place. That's a strong position to, to end with here because it... You're blowing my mind today, for real. You know, you've got so much. I mean, you talk about the seven principles of a high-acting leader, right, in your books. You have how many books now? 11, is that right? Yeah, 10 or 11. That's incredible. So at intelligentmotivationinc.com, that's where you can find Bill. And we're also going to put in the show notes because you have something that you wanted to talk about, right? The five-minute motivator, what's that about? We're going to put this link in the show notes. I record a video every morning. Matter of fact, here's my program notes for it. Uh, and uh, the video uh, is released on YouTube. So I have a YouTube channel. But then I also have something called the Five Minute Motivator, which is a membership. So that every day you'll actually get the link sent to your inbox. Now, I have a reason for starting this Five Minute Motivator membership. First of all, High Octane Leadership. That's this book. It's a full book. is free if you join the membership. I'm giving the book away. Uh, I'm not trying to sell it. I, obviously, there are things to buy on the membership site and so forth, but I'm not worried about that. I want to make my thing in the universe by helping you make your thing in the universe. If you join the membership, you will get Monday through Saturday a five, a less than a five-minute video on some motivational topic. Okay? Uh, be an example. The one I recorded today, now this won't be out for a few weeks, the knife of resolve is sharpened by the challenges we confront and conquer. The one yesterday I think you would enjoy. Economic reasoning and the margin of happiness. Things like that are what I talk about. It's only through Saturday. Sunday, I give you a recap of all of them. And I have to tell you, <coughs> the membership is growing. My goal is when I hit a certain number, I'm going to give away one free ebook a month but leave the old ebook in there, which means, <coughs> excuse me, 
there's going to be a library of ebooks in the motivator. Everyone, visit that link in the show notes for the five minute motivator. It's incredible. I mean, Bill's just been dropping a lot of truth bombs here today. My man, Bill Shaka, Biaj Shaka, thanks for being on. My pleasure. I feel blessed that I met you. Thank you.